we by many takes are, are sort of the last generation to experience the pre post difference in having our lives be largely digital and socially connected. But we can also kind of remember a time where there were chat rooms and instant messaging, but that was about it. Even yeah. texting wasn't really far along. And it's really hard to embody the perspective of somebody who's had it there the entire time. Welcome back to I'm the Villain. Today we're going to be talking about social media, which is a topic I've wanted to talk about for a really long time. And so today we have Jeff Bowen. Bowen? I was right. Bowen. 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 Awesome. Uh, who works at John Hopkins is actually someone who knows something about the topic that we're, <laughs> what we're talking about, which is not always the case. We're just like, we don't, we don't necessarily like select for like people to be kind of experts in any particular field. Like we're fine with it if it's just someone who has, you know, kind of opinions on it. But Jeff, tell us about why you're interested in teaching a course on something like that. Yeah. So, um, my background, uh, is in social psychology and there weren't really any classes like this, certainly at our institution or not too many others uh, out there that I could find, but uh, it seemed just ultra relevant, something that students would find interesting. It's a class currently that I teach in the summer, which is uh, an opportunity for them to kind of freely take things they might not have this time or space for during the regular semesters. And it was a place where I could apply theories or points of view or draw on research from a number of different subfields within psychology, particularly social psychology, which is where my background kind of lives, yeah. uh, and, and use that to try and understand something that was happening in everybody's daily lives in terms of their behavior, their internal lives, and their experiences. And it, it bears on so many sort of important outcomes, including people's well-being and mental health, their ability to learn yeah. uh, and connect socially, both interpersonally and in groups and networks. And so it was drawing on so much that it felt like really a, a timely thing, something that people would be interested in and that we're finally in a position, having learned a little bit about it in the past couple of decades, to, to bring some evidence-based backing to learning about that. Was the class your brainchild? Yeah, pretty much. It was something that that there wasn't uh, there wasn't anything really like it on the books at that time, and they were they were kind enough to give me the freedom to develop something on my own uh, and and launch it in the summer. And uh, so far, so good. Mm -hmm. Is it nested in any sort of curriculum? Like, can the kids get credit towards some kind of major for it? Yes, they can get they can get content credit in the sort of social science focus within the psych major. Yeah. Uh, I and, say kids, uh, like, right? I'm undergraduates, right? yeah, like. <laughs> and. Uh, and yeah, it, count, it definitely counts towards their major. Uh, it can fulfill some sort of subspecialties within that. So, uh, and I was glad for that too, because it's definitely taught at a level that assumes some psych background already. Yeah. So do you think that the format of the class is sort of you synthesizing a bunch of like already existing research and presenting it in a way, like in, through a psychology frame? Uh, in a way, yes, although the, the students have quite a bit of autonomy. So I, um, because they come from a lot of different backgrounds, what I like to do sort of on the lecture side is to equip them with the theoretical backing, sort of the fundamental research to um, everybody, to permit everybody to be in the same uh, sort of space to draw on uh, a common grounding in psychological knowledge and theory to, uh, to have informed conversations, and then they actually get to uh, present articles and lead discussions where those theories are being applied to specific social media practices or phenomena. 
Wow. So my sister is actually taking a social media course. It's her first semester in Skidmore. And she was kind of disappointed because it was like actually so much more about other types of media because you had to like get that grounding to understand kind of that background to social media. So mm -hmm. I'm wondering even what you, when you teach this course, like what is, what do you consider social media to be? Yeah. So, so even in the, even in the academic literature that has um, been not so much debated, but there's been really broad, flexible definitions applied and that, that on the one hand helps people um, bring in a lot of things that might be relevant. Uh, and on the other hand, it, it can, I guess, muddy the waters. Some folks like to say that it's a, a close analog to what we think of as social networking platforms, your Facebooks, your Twitters, and so forth. Others are even broader than that, basically any sort of digital space where social processes can unfold and things that were initially more static uh, in terms of how people engage with it, like YouTube or something like that, have now kind of migrated into that realm because there's so, ma so many opportunities for exchange and feedback. And uh, So like, what about, like, like would email or texting be considered social media? Um, by some definitions, yes. Other folks who specialize in sort of digital psychological processes are happy to just include mobile tech phenomena and online communication within that. I think uh, the field that is studying the processes tends to dictate that. So in communication, studying computer-mediated interaction is its own thing, and that includes this stuff. And so many sites nowadays that have started employing almost social media-esque features, like Venmo, you can comment and like on transactions, and YouTube has, you know, they're, they're, they've imp implemented like a posting system where you can like post statuses and stuff. So I imagine that trying to define what social media is can be really difficult. That's true. And and I, what you're talking about is, is happening across the board. I think, you know, maybe for some of these apps or businesses, it's, it's a good model to have people, you know, meet more than just sort of the core need of yeah. that platform in that space. But yeah, absolutely. That that's a, that's a way to ramp up engagement. So it does sort of broaden out to what social media can qualify as. But I would say that, you know, you can get certainly caught up in the conversation about how to define it. But when it comes to sort of what, from a psychological perspective, is happening in those spaces, yeah. uh, a lot of things can qualify and, and be sort of useful uh, and fertile ground to study those things. So from a psychological perspective, like what are your thoughts on what's going on with social media, you know? Yeah. Uh, in the context of the class, we sort of break it down into three things we think people are most likely to find interesting and that lend themselves well to, to the study of these processes in these spaces. So one thing we're definitely interested in is what are people doing? You know, what does their behavior mean on social media? What are they trying to achieve? How much of it is conscious? How is it different from potentially an analogous behavior taking place offline? Uh, and then we sort of switch gears and talk about what are the consequences to our social lives, our personal lives, and our mental health of being so actively involved in a world that didn't really exist in this way just a couple decades ago. And then we, we switch gears another time and try and consider what psychological processes or phenomena might the social media industry itself be harnessing to try and make changes or, or try and tailor uh, their products to folks uh, in a way that will keep them engaged. So what do you think the impact has been, like, broadly? Do you feel like it's good? Do you feel like it's bad? Like, what's your kind of take on that? It's a really tough question. Yeah. Um, I, it's definitely a mixed bag. I know that's a little bit of a cop-out answer, but no, uh, yeah, I, I, mean, think, I think part of what makes it so tricky sometimes and so beneficial at other times is it's definitely evolving faster than, you know, our social or psychological needs are going to fundamentally shift. And so when there's a little bit of that mismatch potentially going on there, 
things can go off the rails yeah. in the negative direction or they can amplify some positive things that weren't previously available. So yeah. it's more of a how it's being used question that can shape that rather yeah. than a and it's no fun. longer it's no longer filling a void, right? It's just creating new things that we never thought we needed in terms of communicating with each other. That is certainly a take that that I think a lot, a lot of people have, and it's mm -hmm. it's uh, there's some there's some support for that idea. But I think um, you could also make the case that uh, we're not super conscious of what all our needs are at mm -hmm. any given time, and and if our existing behavior points to something that could be filled, then you know there's also that avenue. Um, but but certainly the question of do we have this you know constellation of new needs and, and motives that we never used to have. I err on the side of probably not, but certainly the, the means through which they get fulfilled are right. shifting tremendously. We've talked a lot on this podcast on previous episodes about whether we think sort of the digital age and the social media age is like a net good or bad for society. And I obviously, I think that Isabel and I are both aware of the fact that that is an oversimplification of it. But I have found myself kind of on like the net good side. Um, whilst like trying to accept the bads. But I think that I find myself in the camp of more communication, more connectedness, I think is a positive thing for people, even though it does seem like it's coming with a lot of bullshit. Well, do you think that it's the kind of thing that is replacing actual in-person interactions? That's a tricky question for me because there's there's one take where certainly it, it could appear like, well, you see a lot of people there on their phones rather than maybe having a face-to-face -face conversation with a person whom they're physically with at the time. Or you could say, well, everything is sort of hybridized in an online and offline space and people some people can just sort of seamlessly transition from one to the next. So I think it has a lot to do with what the expectations are for how communication should look. Uh, and some of that's generational, some of that's specific to people's interests or the groups to which they belong, how accessible those intimate connections are in an offline space versus an online space. So I think we are, it is, uh, it is rocky for some people to navigate what that balance ought to look like. And I think at any given time, there's so much transition that it's hard to imagine it settling into some, you know, optimized equilibrium yeah. state of affairs. Well, I'm wondering like, cause, okay. So I would say that I come down more on the side of it kind of being negative and there's two reasons. One, oh, I'm going to forget the second reason immediately, but one, <laughs> one is that I feel like it's too quantifiable in the sense that when you're interacting, you might know somebody is popular in school, right? But you don't know exactly like, okay, this is like a thousand likes versus like 300 likes, right? And you can see literally by the numbers how much like more popular someone who's like an Instagram influencer is, right? Than maybe your average person. And I feel like that can be really damaging once you can quantify those types of things, right? To your self-esteem. And, okay, here's the second thing. I remember it. You also don't get the nuance, right? Of the, you don't get the like, when, you know, when you're talking to someone face to face, like if I'm like unsure of something, I'll pause, but you can't see that when you're texting. And so those are the two things that I feel like are, are, are the most important things that you're losing from having that be like a real face to face interaction. Yeah. Uh, there, there's some, there's some good research on particularly that second thing that you yeah. brought up. I would say to the first, the first point about quantifying these sort of metrics and if the, you know, commodification or, or gamification of, of certain um, social processes or functions like social comparison get out of hand, then you can see some, some uh, downward comparison processes going on, and that can be harmful to people's self-esteem, especially in their peer group. So that element can have some nefarious potential consequences. 
As to the, the second thing, when you're not in a face-to-face -face setting with some folks that you might be having different opinions than or that you might be you know, discussing challenging issues with, there's this sort of constellation of things called the, the online disinhibition effect. And, well, and yeah. they, they are, yeah, there's, there's, no, there's no short names for a lot of this stuff, unfortunately. But a number of the things that happen in those spaces point to the fact that there are these gaps between when you speak and when the next person speaks. And we often will fill in those gaps with things that we imagine or our internal mental states and project those onto potentially this conversation partner, which can lead to disappointment or violated expectations and so forth. And then there's also the issue of uh, the greater degree of anonymity and potentially feeling safe behind a veil. And people can sometimes ramp up their behaviors or the intensity with which they express certain thoughts and feelings in that space. And that too can sometimes be volatile. Yeah, that space between communication points just resonates with me so hard because I definitely identify as an overthinker, you know? And especially when you're trying to curate a new relationship, I, yeah, just constantly filling that space between when I get to the next text with, like, just speculation, right? For no reason. We have a running gag in the class about the the three dots waiting for somebody to reply. Oh man! As a you know a really tense <laughs> sort of period of time that we fill in with all sorts of stuff. There's, um, there's interesting <laughs> stuff about perceptions of communicative intent where there's maybe no direct evidence there, like what happens when somebody ends a sentence with an ellipsis versus a period versus nothing. There's a lot going on. So I feel like, and I can't remember the name of the generation below us. Are they Gen, Gen Z? Y? Gen Z. Mm -hmm. I feel like Gen Z catches a lot of flack for sort of being very involved in their phones or being very involved in social media and this sort of playing such an integral part of the world. And I feel like they catch too much flack. You know, I feel like this, like it's impossible to be, you know, a Gen Zer and not live in this social space. Yeah, I, there's a lot of really interesting questions surrounding that because the folks studying that group tend to come from whatever generations before. So right. for folks who, who fall into the millennial category, uh, so I think all of us do. We, by many takes, are, are sort of the last generation to experience the pre-post difference in having our lives be largely digital and socially connected. But we can also kind of remember a time where there were chat rooms and instant messaging, but that was about it. Even yeah. texting wasn't really far along. And it's really hard to embody the perspective of somebody who's had it there the entire time. And so it may not be as valuable to compare our circumstances and, and you know, priority uh, orders to what those folks are likely experiencing. I feel like I've heard it thrown around that Gen Zers have higher rates of like anxiety and depression mm -hmm. due to social media. Is that science or research or is that? There is bullshit? a good bit of evidence to support that. Um, a developmental psychologist, uh, Dr. Jean Twang, I think I'm saying that correctly or close. Uh, she has been studying this group for a long time. She's got a book and she uses the term iGen, like little i, gen, to sort of capture that sort of Gen Z window. And She's documented quite a lot of um, habits and behaviors that have, unfortunately, had negative mental health consequences, including with anxiety. Some of it is solitude. Some of it is comparison and FOMO. Some of it is, you know, sort of delayed thresholds for sort of major uh, developments in life stages, like when you start driving, how you experience your independence. And so through the lens of, of other or older generations, uh, some of that can, can look harmful. And some evidence suggests that some of those behaviors do have some unfortunate mental health consequences. I've heard it's also something that really disproportionately, it's also a very gendered thing. The research that I've heard is that women tend to be just as aggressive as men, but 
when given iPhones and you know technology that allows the aggression comes out in different ways. Like men tend to be more physically aggressive, women tend to be more socially aggressive and like trying to like you know backstab people, whatever. And physical aggression isn't really augmented by things like iPhones, but social aggression definitely is. Right? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So so um, I'm not too um, uh, in deep in with the with the aggression literature, but I learned some of that same stuff sort of um, you know years ago. That some of the the classic gendered effects of, of forms that aggression can sometimes take. Uh, I think what you're describing about, you know, do social forms or, or psychological forms of, of different sorts of uh, hurtful or, or aggressive behavior um, get magnified by these platforms in a way that physical confrontation might not there. Um, there's certainly a case to be made for that. I think also norms and expectations that might be experienced differently across gender can get magnified in those places too, especially if some of the, the self-presentational means are about physical appearance and you know imagery and validation that, that like you said earlier, gets quantified uh, in ways that, that lead to enhanced social comparison. And there is some research to suggest that, that girls and young women uh, experience some of uh, some greater negative consequence in those domains. So do you feel like things like Instagram taking out, like showing likes and things like that? Do you think, what do you think? Do you think that's going to be positive? Do you think it's going to be neutral? Like, what are you thinking about things like of that nature? Yeah, I, I, I think there, there may have been um, other reasons besides their, their primary stated reason for, um, for what this might, might allow them to do. I don't know if it had something to do with sponsorship or, or, or sponsored content, but, but I, I think uh, on the face of it, the, the idea that it might, you know, at least initially lead to, lower degrees of social comparison by way of that quantification route, uh, it's, it's a possibility that would be predicted by a few theoretical points of view. So I'm, I'm interested to see what ends up happening. And, and if they start to lose a little bit of member activity in response to this, um, what would their sort of compensatory adjustment to the platform look like? Yeah, I was listening to a podcast talking about sort of the ulterior motives, the unstated reasons. This podcast was saying that they think that the sole reason that Instagram was doing it was to take power away from creators so that when brands go to people's Instagram accounts, they have to go through Instagram as a middleman to negotiate like promotion deals. Wait, I don't understand. How exactly would that, would they have to do that? Well, I guess the difference now is that if Instagram does take away likes completely, brands can no longer approach someone to say, we see what you're doing. We like. We see that you have engagement. We see that you have a following. Let me sponsor you. Creators now have to approach brands and say, like, because Instagram is saying that they'll still still keep the back end, and you can see your own your own metrics. But that's uh, one a very very different dynamic. And the idea is that instead of that happening, the brands are just going to go to Instagram instead and say, Hey, Instagram, you have all the metrics. We can't see them in the, see them anymore. Who should we advertise with? And that Instagram can monetize that service. So I wanted to ask, as so you obviously are a millennial still. So how involved in social media are you personally? Almost paradoxically, very little. Mm. Uh, I have like maybe one account, two, and and, and is I'm that, not has active. it sort of always been that way? Or yes. Is? Yeah. No. I, I didn't. I didn't change in response to anything in particular. I was. <laughs> not an early adopter. And then as more platforms became available, I saw other people doing it and never really got on board. It wasn't really a principled objection. It was just didn't happen. And, and I'm, you know, I, I do a lot of my, my work face to face and I like that space. Uh, so I wasn't uh, initially seeing much that I wanted to add from that world. I'm sure there are plenty of benefits I'm, I'm likely missing out on by not being in all of those spaces. Uh, but I think 
on balance for now i'm I'm happy with where it is but it could change mm-hmm. so you never uh dated via like tinder or anything no, like that no i missed that window oh man <laughs> I'm, I'm you know fascinated by it i mean a lot of my research is on the formation of and maintenance of young adult relationships that's actually where i specialize within social psychology so yeah. that you know ignoring the role that that platform is playing would be folly on my part so i'm reading a lot about it i've talked to many people who for whom that is a major part of their life and give it another couple months and i think a lot of studies will start rolling out they're just a little behind the the rapid yeah. changes in the tech yeah and you were talking about like the pre-post of the uh, and how we're like the last generation that is going to have that and i'm just man dating as a gen z or like or as a yeah gen z or as an mm-hmm. i-gener <laughs> mm-hmm. dating as an i-gener is just going to be so bizarre right it's going to be so wild i think because i feel like it, we at least grew up and it seems like you probably didn't meet your wife on any sort of social platform nope. and you didn't isabel didn't meet your partner um i met both of my partners on social media mm-hmm. um or on social dating apps mm-hmm. but you know that i do like i very, very starkly remember a time, you know, in high school and even like in my early college years where that just wasn't a thing. So, um, and that's not going to be a thing for the kids nowadays. Remember speed dating? There was a window of time where that really looked like that was going to, you know, it had a really, you know, sort of hot couple of years and, and I don't hear about it much anymore. The idea of it, I think actually gives people some anxiety. Yeah, totally. I mean, I remember like a friend of mine was like, yeah, my younger sister started dating this person online that she just never met before, doesn't live in her town, you know, and is just 100% like, yeah, it's like the kind of thing that for me, yeah, it feels very weird to think about. But if you consider, if you consider on the flip side that we, the way we were talking about, you know, truly growing up with this as a means of interacting with people that's been quite normalized for that age group. Then when they, you know, reach the age where they're starting to be interested in dating and romantic connections and, and all of that, uh, to go to that type of platform to meet that need would seem probably pretty natural. So I'm, I'm curious to see, you know, how that's going to start looking for people, how the dating apps might evolve to accommodate a cohort that has always been social media connected, as opposed to ones like ours that started out not that way. You know, do you need to repurpose offline romantic settings into an online sphere or if that's not the way most people are socializing can you just harness something that's going on in the non-romantic social media landscape and tailor it to those needs so do you have a a favorite part of the class to teach like is there a certain part of the curriculum where you're like yeah i'm really into this yes uh there is i didn't expect it to be my favorite part of the class but when i saw just how um interesting it was to extend this idea to so many different social media processes i really got um, excited to talk about it so it's when we talk about are people familiar with this thing called the google effect no what is it? okay so um i'm not the best at explaining it but effectively a few years ago actually almost eight or nine or ten by now um, there was a, a lot of conversation surrounding whether having google at our fingertips made it so that we were, you know, one of the like fantastical versions of the claim was that we were not as smart, but really it was that we weren't retaining a lot of information in our head. We just knew where to go and find it. So we weren't, you know, repositories of information the way we used to be. And uh, what are the consequences to our ability to remember new stuff of knowing we have it there? And the, um, the idea was that memory 
when there's too much information for one person to hold can get outsourced to a community or a network. And that's something we call transactive memory in the psychological world. And what happens if your quote unquote transactive memory partner is not a person or a group of people who share knowledge, but the internet, which mm -hmm. has such a greater capacity to hold on to this stuff than even hundreds of people might. And in exaggerated instances like that, um, there's been some work that describes the internet as what's called a supernormal stimulus, which is another long name for something, uh, where basically any social or psychological function that was shaped by some sort of like evolutionary processes um, has sort of placed constraints on the way we might react to something we see. So like, like a mother goose sees an egg and wants to protect that egg because there might be a baby inside. But if you ramp up and exaggerate the scale of one of these stimuli to be impossibly large, that there's no history in our sort of ancestral past for being exposed to anything of that scale, we have no framework for understanding it. So we just exaggerate our response to it. So these like mother geese, I think, will will follow around eggs that are over large, like impossible to contain uh, like a baby chick and will be extra, extra protective of it because of its exaggerated huh. features. And so the idea is we might use the internet as a memory partner in the same way, making us especially likely not to hang on to anything in our own minds because we know we have this massive resource available to us. And things like that, that super normal phenomenon might help to explain lots of other exaggerated responses to things like social validation that we get online, feelings of rejection, bullying, comparison, and some of those other things. So thinking about that super normal quality was something that got a lot of fun to talk about. And the mm -hmm. students have lots of thoughts about it. So is the idea sort of going from that line of thinking is the idea that maybe like we, for example, can't control how the entire like, world thinks of us, but because we sort of, the internet gives us the idea that maybe we kind of sort of can influence it. We become like more vulnerable and quote unquote, like hyper react to things that happen. It's possible that, that one thing that, that, that does react in an exaggerated fashion might be our sensitivity to feedback because we can convince ourselves that, um, stuff that might exist online, but that we had a hand in generating that we feel a great deal of ownership over. And some of that, that same research I, I mentioned a moment ago speaks to that as well, where if we can't clearly identify who the other person behind the veil is, we can sometimes not even consciously take credit for some of that stuff. And when we feel ownership over something and we get negative feedback in response to it, it can be especially hurtful. Mm -hmm. What are some of the assignments you give the, the students? So a lot of what we ask them to do is to, to read these articles and present them and draw on their own experiences to connect with the material that we're, we're covering. We also have them propose new ideas. But some of the stuff we'll do in the context of the class, one of my favorite things we did recently was to try and get them to, to harness the processes we talk about that inform social media behavior and try and use that to sort of design something that seems psychologically suited to a social media setting. So it's nothing particularly high tech, but we did one activity where we had people design a new emoji that didn't exist to sort of meet mm. the need of some idea that wasn't previously there. And people were very creative about some of this stuff. Wow. I don't use a lot of emojis. So that would be really hard for me because I don't know what, like, what the realm of emojis are right now. It's tremendous. <laughs> it's absolutely tremendous. But they came up with stuff I hadn't seen before. They had one that was uh, hangry, mm -hmm. which I don't think there's an existing emoji. Maybe there is now. Um, not that deep which is apparently a thing people like to say. Wait, 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 what is, what was the emoji for hangry though? Like what was it? It was um, like a stomach with those little bubbles that communicate yeah. um, hunger 
and a face on top of it that was pretty ragey. Yeah. <laughs> so we had to do something like that when we were like, it's like third grade and we had to do this project where you had to come up with a new organism and you're like, wow, there's really like almost nothing I can think to come up with that doesn't already actually exist in nature. So it's just funny because I feel like it'd be very difficult. Actually, I feel like the emojis that we do have are already used so creatively that it's like hard to come up with something mm-hmm. that couldn't actually be communicated with the emojis that we have now already, yeah. you know? It's really hard to be creative with zero constraints because you can go in a million different directions and sometimes that can be sort of paradoxically limiting. But yeah, we, we do get pretty creative. A lot of stuff um, that may not have been intended by developers gets gets harnessed in all sorts of interesting ways, which is something that's going to be a really interesting area of study pretty soon because that's the users communicating a need that they see as requiring fulfillment and they'll use a platform that may not have been explicitly designed for something in the service of meeting that need. Uh, and that might signal, you know, new developments to the folks who are, you know, managing the software. Right. Yeah. Well, I, I think about, I often think about social media in the con, I was a political science major. So I really think about it a lot in the context of these macro kind of like, you know how in Sri Lanka they had this, I think it was last summer. Basically there's a lot of, you know, tension between the local, the Sinhalese and the Tamils in in Sri Lanka. And there was this video that went viral of this guy who was going up to this guy. So this this Tamil man, who the Sinhalese person who was taking taking the video, um, said something to him, and the Tamil man didn't understand what he was saying because he didn't speak Sinhalese. Um, but he, um, the person, the Sinhalese person, was like are you guys like sterilizing our food or whatever? Like, so that, you know, we can't have babies, blah, blah, blah. Because like, that's something that's a rumor that had been going around and the guy didn't know what he was saying. So he was just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. We like, you know, yeah, don't worry. Right. But like that went viral because it didn't have that context. Right. And then they literally, the whole country, like, had this huge, had these riots, like people were like, you know, going to people's houses and like burning them down and they had to shut down Facebook for a lot of stuff like that. So like, I'm really curious if, if I know you're, you look at more like the psych perspective, but like whether you have thoughts around like from these big macro scales, like being able to have that much access to, and just have things go viral, like what kind of effects that's going to have long-term. Yeah. So we, we do spend a little bit of time trying to unpack the nature of like virality. Yeah. And, um, one of the things that that contributes so so in the example you you just gave the it, something that was just a misunderstanding something that ended up not being true i guess in that context got a ton of attention anyway maybe a lot of people believed it to be true and that led to all sorts of elevated emotions um there's some work that that, that finds that the spreading of both true and false information um tends to be exaggerated when that information is is novel or violates expectations and unfortunately Things that aren't true sometimes have that shock value by their very nature of violating an expectation. And so if that was something either some folks wanted to hear to validate a feeling they already had or surprised other people and that enraged them, both of those things can contribute to widespread you know, diffusion across a network of information like that. Uh, and so... Uh, yeah, there is some work that points to that being part of what, you know, how people might engineer something to be viral or just something that happens organically having far reaching effects. Some of them unfortunate. Yeah, definitely. Do you, what do you feel like long term, like, you know, 10 years down the line, 20 years down the line? There's a lot of people I know who are like, yeah, I would never let my kids use social media or have a phone. Like, do you feel like it's, I think there's a lot of people who have this very dystopian view of what 
the long-term effects of having these companies completely mediating these social spaces that we spend so much time on. Um, like, do you also kind of share that almost like, you know, like, I don't know. What do you think about that? I heard an interview with um, founder of Instagram, whose name is escaping me right now. Yeah, um, I don't know. <laughs> I'll come up with it in like five minutes. Yeah. Uh, and and he, he said something to the effect of being like 80% excited, 20% trepidatious or 90, 10 I think, you know, using these things responsibly, remembering that, you know, in many domains, there, there's just people on the other end of this stuff. That's both people who are developing and creating and monitoring, people using. I think there's a, a certain inevitability to it. And so the, you know, focusing attention on healthy use and, and, and management and balance with other uses of our time, as opposed to, you know, a complete light switch approach might be, you know, might be the healthiest and most realistic way to move forward with it. So I, I think I'm sort of around there with it. I think in most instances, it would be very difficult or it might inhibit social development in some settings because every other member of a person's community might be connected. And so it might be really hard to be the person who isn't, but I think you know, moderation as with all sorts of things. There's plenty of work on, you know, addiction going on in that sphere and you definitely, you know, don't want to drift too far in that direction with it. So mm -hmm. I think, you know, uh, cautious optimism maybe is one one stance that, that I could get on board with. Kevin Systrom. What's his name? Kevin Systrom. Is that the name? Yeah. Okay. Kevin I think Systrom. I heard another name too maybe that started I don't with know, an that A. Was, that was what Isabel's quick Google search okay. <laughs> gave us. Or Tom? Mike Krieger? No, man. Who am I thinking of? I don't know. All right. Tom from MySpace. That's funny. <laughs> uh, so I'd love to also sort of venturing away from the more psychology or psychological, psychologically focused realm. I'd love to pick your brain about what you think or if you think these sort of big mediators of public conversational spaces have a corporate responsibility in this like sort of town hall effect to like to try to quote unquote police what's true and what's not on their like big platforms. Oh, that, I mean, that's tricky, right? They, they develop and try and update whatever their codes of conduct are and right. bylaws and so forth. And so yeah. I think, and um, like YouTube is like actively now mm -hmm. actively like suppressing and sometimes taking down videos that like flat earthers put up, for example. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people, even people that, you know, don't think the earth is flat are worried about a slippery slope effect of like, YouTube getting to be the arbiter of what's mm. true and what's not true. Mm -hmm. I think these are, are such a unique category of product because of how much freedom users have to shape content that I think uh, they naturally fall into a, a tricky category arbitration wise. Yeah. So maybe a, a valuable approach is to, to draw on the wisdom from as many folks who understand what's happening, whether it be psychologically on the tech side, politically, legally, yeah to put their heads together and, you know, like continue to innovate in terms of what constitutes sensible management of that stuff. Yeah. It feels like there is some sort of sweet spot for me, right? Like somewhere in the middle where, you know, like Facebook isn't like literally deciding what's true and what's not true, but also I don't want the dissemination of like really harmful and maybe false things to go through social platforms unmitigated, you know? But yeah, that's like a thing that I've been pondering for a while now. It presents challenges for what it means to be an informed consumer of information if you if your information is skewed in one way or another and that positions you to make 
potentially important decisions based on that information. Definitely. I've also really, I read this article on the investigative report like years ago, like when I was in college. And apparently it's also a huge issue for all the people who are doing content moderation for companies like YouTube. And we export all of that. I mean, it's really, really hard work to do because you're literally watching like people tearing apart babies and molesting children and stuff like that. And it's like so hard to moderate that kind of content so they're just like paying like poor people in india to do it and stuff like that and that's like not even our physical garbage right like our emotional garbage we're like shipping across you know the kind of, you know across the ocean and that just is so politically like you know like <laughs> it's like hard to figure out what how do you like technically you do need people to kind of mediate those spaces but no matter what, it's always going to be this extremely delicate situation. Yeah, you know? uh, absolutely. I mean, it, it's it's unsettling a lot of what some people are, are being exposed to in a role that you know is intended ultimately to to manage to keep the spaces as positive and healthy as it can otherwise be. And I guess um, whatever you know, automated systems for doing that are not perfect. So right, yeah, and you always need people. I mean, to be able to, I don't know, do that. And so that's always just going to be kind of. I don't know if you guys have read the ones who walk away from Omelas, but it's like an Ursula Gwynn short story about how like they have this utopian society and then like there's this one kid who has to like suffer in like the basement of the town hall or whatever. And that's very much how it feels to me, you know, <laughs> it's kind of, I mean, for all, for all the ways in which social media can, can make things that are not so egalitarian more. So it certainly is not going to undo that exactly. sort of thing. Yeah. Jeff, thank you so much. Uh, it was a pleasure having you. Pleasure to be here. Thank you, guys. <laughs> uh, do you... I suspect the answer to this is no. Do you have anything that you want to plug? Any, like, oh, <laughs> social media pages? Right. I, I was... <laughs> unfortunately, no. But I, I think, you know, I would say um, for those who are interested, there's, there's a lot of good and readable scientific literature out there um, for folks wanting to understand kind of what is the, the current evidence-based, you know, what, what's driving sort of decision-making in that, in that realm. And I think, you know, to keep an eye on that stuff is, is really nice because like I said, it, it's sort of catching up with the evolving platforms themselves. So, um, you know, it can make some links available or something like that. Yeah. Maybe you can send check some that, that stuff out. over to us and mm -hmm. we can put it in the show notes or something like that. Sure. Um, thank you so much, Jeff. Uh, yeah. I had a really good time talking about social media and a very like sciencey way. Uh, <laughs> I feel like I don't often get to do it, especially with actual, like an actual expert in the room. <laughs> um, but yeah, if you liked what you heard here, um, have any questions, feel free to hit us on Instagram or wherever at I'm the villain pod. Rate us five stars on Apple, Apple podcasts. <laughs> okay. Bye. <laughs>